All right, so imagine you have been with a tour guide, with a tour group, and you've been traveling through the land of Canaan, through Israel, through the promised land after the time of Joshua. And on your way, the tour guide makes regular stops at stones along the way. And when the tour guide gets to a particular stone, perhaps it's a singular stone, perhaps it's a, a, a cairn, a nice stack of stones, or perhaps it's just a bunch of rubble that is there, your tour guide takes the time to explain to you what took place there. Why are these stones in this particular place? And so you hear the stories, as we have done, as we've worked our way through the book of Joshua. You hear the story, you say, oh, okay, at this point, God took the people through the Red Sea, and there we've got a cairn set up for that. That pile over there, that is the rubble of the walls of Jericho. That pile over there, it's a little bit smaller. That's actually the stones that were used to kill Achan and his family because of their sins. And beyond that are the ruins of Ai that you see the stones there. Sometimes there are a bunch of stones. Sometimes they're singular stones. Sometimes your tour guide explains that these stones are actually an altar to the Lord. And you hear all of the stories of what God has done. And at the end of your tour, the guide brings you to Shechem and points out this one final stone underneath of the terebinth, near at least at that time where the altar of the Lord was, where the sanctuary of God was, underneath the oak tree. There's this one final stone. And of course, as you've looked at all the stones through the book, you realize that these stones are more than stones. They are monuments, they are memorials, and as, as we're confronted by them, we're called to look at them and we're called to remember, to think back, to reflect on what happened there, on what God did at a particular place, but they are even more than that. These stones, and in particular, this final stone of which we speak today, are witnesses. Symbolically, metaphorically, these stones have watched. These stones have listened. That's what it says in the word, right? Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. And these stones, and in particular this last stone, they speak and they bear testimony. They say, we were here. We were here when the words were spoken by your fathers, by your mothers. We were here, and we bear testimony to it. They speak, they speak of the past, but when we're standing in front of them, and this is the way they are designed, when you're standing in front of it, the, the focus becomes not on the past. They speak of the past, but then the crosshairs turn immediately. And the crosshairs point directly at our hearts, directly at our minds, directly into our heads. And they say to us, remember the covenant and choose this day. Remember the covenant and choose this day. 
but let's listen to a stone that speaks. And what it's going to say, and this is the way I'm going to structure the sermon today, what it's going to say is two things. You are chosen, now choose. First, you are chosen. I mentioned uh, even before the service started that the chapter that is set before us today is in the form of a covenant. This is what a covenant document looks like. It's what a covenant document looks like, not only in biblical history, but in other cultures in this area. These elements that we see here are common elements. And a covenant document begins with a preamble. It begins with an introduction. And in our text today, that brief introduction of who this is speaking is, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, in verse 2. That's the beginning of it. I am the Lord, the God of Israel, and now I speak. That is the introduction that begins this. And it is followed by, that, that preamble is followed by a historical prologue. It is where the king who is making the covenant with peoples then declares what he has done as the king, how he has worked on behalf of the people or how he has conquered the people. And that's what continues in our chapter here as you look through verses 2 to 13. 2 to 13, the verses are a summary of the history of Israel. But there is nothing in them about what Israel did. Instead, the summary that is provided for us here in verses 2 through 13 is a summary of what God has done for the people. God is the primary mover. He is the first cause. Look at the verses just for a moment. Just look at verses 3 to 5 and look at the way it describes what I, I here being God, did. I took your father Abraham. I gave him Isaac. I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country. And I sent Moses and Aaron. And I plagued Egypt. What I did in the midst of it and afterwards I brought you out. There's no mention here of what these people did. There's no mention here that Moses brought you out of the land. There's no mention here of people acting. It is, in fact, what God has done for them. God created Israel and God chose Israel. Verse 2 in this chapter is an absolutely essential biblical verse for understanding who Israel is as a people and who we are as God's people in our day. Here's what it says. And Joshua said to the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. God chose Abraham. The question that quickly arises in the minds of an Israelite is, okay, good, but why? Why did God choose Abraham? Did, did God choose Abraham because he had a really great understanding of how things worked in the world and a great sense of wisdom about him? Did, 
God choose Abraham because he was a good guy. He stood head and shoulders above other people in holiness and in righteousness. Did God choose Abraham because while everybody else around him were idol worshipers, he himself was orthodox. Somehow he kept things straight. No. God chose Abraham, a man who, like his fathers, worshipped false gods, worshipped idols. And Calvin calls this a gratuitous adoption. God graciously chose Abraham not because of anything that was in him. And it has the effect for the Israelites, and this is to quote Calvin, of precluding, boasting of any particular excellence or merit. They are now living in the midst of Canaanites, of people who worship all sorts of gods in all sorts of ways. And you can imagine that one, just one of the temptations that the Israelites would have in the midst of the Canaanites, having just defeated all of them, would be to have a sense of superiority about themselves. We don't worship these silly gods that you worship. We worship the Lord, the God. That's who we are. That's, that's our history. That's the kind of people we are. But what God is saying here at the very beginning of this history is, listen, you live in the midst of the Canaanites, but your roots are no better than their roots. Your fathers were idol worshipers. They are idol worshipers. You guys came from the same stock. The same thing is characteristic of both of you. And in fact, not only did Abraham worship idols and Abraham's father, look at verse 14. It says, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river, that's Abraham, and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So not only did they have idol-worshiping great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers, but in Egypt itself, they also served and worshipped idols. It's not like everything got taken care of at one moment with Abraham, and they no longer did that. They went back to it even in Egypt. And again, let me quote Calvin for us. Abraham did not emerge from profound ignorance and the abyss of error by his own virtue, but was drawn out by the hand of God. Israel is Israel, not by virtue, not by merit, not by any of their military prowess that they would have demonstrated. Israel is Israel because God chose them. God chose them, and God chose to covenant with them. That's what makes them who they are and nothing else. It sounds very familiar. It should sound exactly like what Jesus said to his disciples. John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. I chose you. Now, I'm not going to look the rest of the history that goes up to verse 13. Really, it's the story of Genesis and Exodus and the book of Numbers. I'm not going to look at it for the sake of brevity. The point
point is made clear. Everything that Israel is, everything that has taken place in her history, everything that they have, everything that they possess, the places where they live, the orchards that they're eating from, the houses that they dwell in, the cities that they now inhabit, everything was provided by God. God chose them and provided everything for them. You are, Church of Jesus Christ, not a self-made people. You are chosen by God. You are who you are. We are who we are because of the choosing, the choosing of God. We are not a people who became who we are because we choose wisely. Francis Schaeffer puts it very succinctly. We come from rebellion. Maybe there are a few generations back where you can trace your faith. Praise God if that's the case. But the bottom line is we come from rebellion. And that's important. We have to hear from the stone that we are a chosen people. Joshua wants us to hear that because as a chosen people who are not self-made, who are not who they are because they chose, but rather because they were chosen, Joshua has a command. And the command is, now choose. Now choose wisely. Now choose well. God's choosing is not the kind of choosing that kills the will of a woman or of a man. Instead, when God chooses, what he ha does is he has the effect of liberating an otherwise captive will and enabling it to serve him. That's what God's choosing does. It liberates a captive will so that now a freed will can respond to choose whom you will serve. Covenantally, we are moving from what God has done to what God requires, and that's the progress that you make in an, old, in a, in an ancient covenant. This is what I have done for you. This is now what I am requiring from you. The stipulations of this covenant, and I won't go through them in detail, are set out for us in verses 14 through 24 of this section. Being chosen by God does not eliminate the necessity of choice. Again, Schaefer says it in a way that I think I've said it a number of times. We are not puppets. We're not puppets. We're image bearers. And we come in this section that we've got before us today to a high watermark, maybe the high watermark of Old Testament commitment and of Old Testament homiletics, preaching. Joshua lays it on thick. Serve the Lord, fear the Lord. How shall we serve him? How shall we fear him? You should do it with sincerity and with faithfulness. You should put away the things that are old, and lest anyone be tempted in the future to say, you know what, listen, this whole covenant thing, 
I didn't choose to be a part of this. I was forced into this covenant. God made me do it. It's a burden to serve God and be in the covenant. Joshua sets it up as a choice. Now, this is too old of a reference for most of you, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's the thing that is set up here. You're going to have to serve someone. So here you go. Here are three options for you of who you could serve. Joshua sets them up. Here's option number one. Option number one, you can choose to serve the old gods. The old gods, as I've said, come in two forms. The gods beyond the river, which refers to the gods that Abraham worshipped, or the gods that your fathers worshipped in Egypt. That's option number one. Choose to serve the old gods. You'll be connected with your past. Option number two, you can serve the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. We have now provided for us a whole new menagerie of gods from which we can choose. They're the hip gods. They're the, they're the contemporary gods, right? You're in this land. You want to be like the Canaanites? You don't want to look weird? Well, worship the way the Canaanites worship. So option number one, old gods. Option number two, the hip gods, the ones who are right in front of you. And, of course, option number three, you can serve Yahweh, the only true God, and we have the line of lines that is given for us from the book. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. An existential choice of the highest magnitude is put before the Israelites and put before everyone who stands in front of that stone. And the question is, who are you going to be and it is answered with reference to whom you will serve. Who you are answered with reference to whom you serve. And the response to this riveting, this compelling speech by Joshua is as you might expect. The congregation is hearing him. Yes, amen. We'll do it. Joshua, he's our man. He can't preach it. Nobody can. We are with you, Joshua. We also are going to serve the Lord with you. That's what we want to do. We'll obey him. We'll go to church. We'll serve in the church. We will baptize our kids, circumcise our sons in their case. We'll teach them the faith will be great examples to them. We'll pray with our kids and for our kids. We'll help other parents to raise their kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We will give generously. We will love others. Enthusiasm is real. And it exists in this passage at this high water mark, high water moment in Israel's history. It is infectious. And I am sure that when the people said, yes, we will serve the Lord with you, that they were sincere and they were committed to what they were saying in their choice. What happens next? Joshua is preaching and he's got this bucket next to him and it's full of cold water and he picks it up and throws it right out on him. That didn't happen. But metaphorically it did. I have got to check that enthusiasm 
I've got to stop you in your tracks right now. I've got to slap you across the face for what you just said. And this, by the way, is why, one of the reasons, why Presbyterians are historically cautious about extreme emotional exclamations and ejaculations in the context of a worship service. We're doubtful, not of God, but of ourselves. We're skeptical of us. Joshua says this, 19, but Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Friday morning, I was in a coffee shop in Baltimore, and I was working on a homily, a homily for a funeral yesterday. And a young man came up to me, and uh, I had my Bible out, and it's probably, I didn't, I, I, I look like a pastor, right? I'm sitting there write, writing notes with my Bible out. And he comes up, and he's got a phone, and he's standing next to me, and I don't really know what's happening. Uh, and he shows his phone to me. And on his phone, it's written, do you believe Jesus is God? Now, I realized at this point he's, he's a deaf mute, okay? He's a deaf mute. Do you believe Jesus is God? I said, yes, I believe Jesus is God. He writes again on his phone. God himself? Yes, God himself. Next thing he typed, I'm afraid because he is a holy God. And I thought, wise man. Wise man. This is what Joshua is saying right here. You Israelites should be afraid because he's a holy God. You can say what you want, but things just got very real. We are deep in the count the cost mode, deep in the morass of ongoing and persistent sin. Joshua knows these people. This is a dark word that he gives here. There's a choice that he has set up. Here's what you must do, and you are utterly incapable of doing it. You must do it to live, and you are utterly incapable of doing what I just called you to do because of who God is, holy and jealous, and who you are, inconstant. Choices, vows, and covenants are not for lighthearted moments. They're beautiful, but they're not lighthearted. They demand serious evaluation of the heart and of the mind and of the will. But Ralph, Ralph Davis writes this about this passage, quoting the verse and then his words, you cannot serve Yahweh, that's from Joshua, neither Israel nor the church could hear a more beneficial word than that. Of course, the people persist in their desire, their choice to serve the Lord. But now their persistence is with a checked pride, boasting, and arrogance. Their can-do attitude 
has been replaced with sobriety. And in accord with covenant custom, that's what we see playing out in the rest of this, the covenant is cut, the covenant is made, it is recorded, and the witness is established. Joshua has set it up so that on the one hand the people are witnesses. They are witnesses against themselves regarding what they just said. All covenants, though, have a witness or have witnesses to what has taken place. And the witness that is established is the stone that is set up under the tree. We might like to think of this stone positively. Hey, there's a testimony of God's faithfulness. This stone under the tree, God has covenanted with us. But the stone being set up continues the foreboding atmosphere that characterized the end of this speech. Life in this land with God is going to be extremely dangerous. And this stone that I am setting up is a witness against you. Gulp. A witness against you. Generations will be judged by that stone for their failure to keep that covenant. Joshua wasn't about just trying to give homiletical flourish to it. Let me get them all riled up, then let me bring them back down, now let me bring them back up again. This isn't homiletical flourish when Joshua says, you cannot serve the Lord. Joshua is speaking truth. And you want proof of it? Turn your Bible, don't do it later, you can do it later. Turn your Bible one page. One page and you will enter the book of Judges. And you will see that Joshua wasn't just speaking words to sound nice. Joshua was speaking truth. The people couldn't do it. Save one. Great Joshua's greater namesake. Yeshua, the Lord saves, Yeshua, Iesus, Jesus, God, Jehovah, saves, the anointed one. He kept the covenant. He obeyed the law. Jesus served his father in sincerity and in faithfulness. He was blameless, and yet the Father allowed the stone to speak against him. See, the stone, anybody who has come in front of that stone since the day it was set up there has been condemned because nobody can stand the testimony that says, I am a holy, holy, holy God, and you stand before me, covenant breaker. The stone witnesses against to all humanity who has stood in that place. And one human enters between the stone and between the humanity and says, stone, speak to me, the blameless one, of their offense. Accuse me of it. And the stone witnesses against the sinless one. And the sinless one 
bears the guilt of the multitudes who have stood or will stand before that stone. What's the result of standing before that stone and being so judged? The result is the result that Moses and Joshua and Eleazar experienced. You will die, Jesus. You want to stand in that place? You will die in that place. For no one can stand in that place and live. You will die. And you, like them, and like the bones of Joseph, will be buried. But unlike them, the sinless one, that seed planted rose bodily in three days. And when he rose, and when he ascended to the right hand of his father, what he did is he secured an inheritance that could not be secured by the first Joshua. They were not going to be able to stay in this land of inheritance as great as it was, as wonderful as Joshua was as a leader. Yeshua, one, could not save them. He could not secure the inheritance. Yeshua, two, the Lord Jesus Christ, secures the inheritance, the eternal inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth for all who will trust in him. And he declares, in me is the new covenant, and I am the cornerstone. For those of you who are here who do not know the Lord Jesus, hear the command of this text of the Bible, of the book of Joshua. Choose. Choose to serve the Lord, the living and risen God. But only choose in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you choose in your own ability to do it, you are hopelessly lost. You choose in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who stood in your place. Or don't choose. What you will find, if God is gracious to you, sooner, maybe later, is that actually you were chosen first. You chose, but you will find later that you were first chosen by him. To those of you who are in Christ, chosen of the Lord and precious in his sight, those of you who are here, you're awaiting the inheritance. You live in a world surrounded by idols. Your own hearts, our own hearts are full of idols. And so we must continue having been chosen, having made the great choice for God, the once for all choice, we must choose today and choose daily and choose 15 times a day who we will serve. Keep choosing this day to serve the Lord. That's what it means to fight the good fight. That's what it means as a new covenant believer to, in the words of Paul to Timothy, wage the good warfare, holding the faith and a good conscience through the blood of and in the name of Jesus. That is the promise, and that is the summons 
of the book of Joshua to us. Gracious God, we cannot serve you. You know our hearts. You know our hearts better than we know it ourselves, and you know how fickle we are. We would, in our pride, desire to say, we can serve you and we will serve you. Jesus, let us humbly say that in your name we will serve you. By your grace, we will serve you. Be merciful towards us. Remember the covenant. Remember the blood of Jesus shed on our behalf. Help us to walk in the promises. Help us to heed the summons. For those who are not here or who are here today who do not know you, may this be the day when they fall on their knees before the stone of witness and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.